Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this special two-part episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with three-time World Series champ, Chili Davis. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a three-time All-Star, three-time World Series champ. He hit 350 homers in his 19-year career, and he was one of the best switch hitters of his generation. Ladies and gentlemen, Chili Davis. Chili, thanks for coming on the program. Boone, it's a pleasure, man. It's a pleasure. Uh, I'm glad you asked me to come on. We have a good time. You know, one of my few friends... That if you just say, "Hey, Chili's on the phone," it yeah, I know who it is. Okay, if if my other buddy, hey, Tommy's on the phone, Kenny's on the phone, Joey's on. Well, Joey, who? There is one. <laughs> there is only one Chili. <laughs> where'd you get the nickname? Uh, so- where'd you get the Where'd you get the nickname? Oh my goodness! I've had that nickname since elementary school, and. You wouldn't believe it, man. Um, Shane Mack. You remember Shane Mack? I remember Shane Mack. Right-handed power guy from the Minnesota Twins. Outfield. Yep. Played for a few teams. Played for the Padres, Twins. Well, I grew up with Shane Mack. And uh, Shane Mack's cousin, Sean Shepard, was my best friend growing up. Uh, And he uh, gave me that nickname. Him and another gentleman by the name, Graham Harrison in elementary school in L.A. Long story. Don't ask me why, but it stuck. <laughs> it stuck? And you went by Chili your whole life after that? I, I mean, it's kind of a cool yeah, name. You, Nobody else you know, has it. Booney, if I, if, hey, if I say Brett's on the phone, what are you going to say? All right, Brett Boone, Brett Farr, Brett Saberhagen. You don't know. <laughs> well, you know, you got you got Chili. Uh, what's the guy uh, on uh, Get Shorty? Uh, yeah, right, right. That, that's a chili, but he ain't gonna call me. <laughs> he, he's he's probably yeah, not calling me. Seeing seeing how my golf swing is, straighten my putting out. <laughs> that was, was Josh Volta, wasn't it? What was his last yeah. name? Chili, uh, chili Palmer. Chili Palmer. Yeah, I was gonna say. Parker. I think. I think. Get shorty. Yeah, that was a good show. Yeah. yeah, the guy. Um, I think the guy. He passed away recently. He had the best. No, no, Chili Palmer was John Travolta, right? I'm talking about the white-haired yeah. guy that was funny. Uh, yeah. He passed away yeah. recently. That's one of my favorite roles, that guy's role. Yeah. It was one of my favorite. I like him, favorite. Too. I just watched yeah. him on a movie. I watched him on a movie this morning. I forgot what movie that was. But, uh, yeah. He's, uh, I love it. Anyway, love that. man, um, you know, uh, the name stuck. And, you know, I've, I've contemplated changing my name, my real name, to Chili, from Charles to Chili. Reason being, Booney, is my name is Charles Davis. You know how many Charles Davises there are in this world? There's huh? a lot. It'll be tough to find you on Twitter. Not only is oh it Charles goodness. Davis, it's it's Charles Theodore Davis. Oh, well, we're English. We're Jamaican, so, you know, we were... English colony. So, you know, we got the Delroys in my family, the Olives, the not Derricks, but Doric, you know, very English, very English. I've got, you know, I always tell people I've got 
a name of a prince or a king. You know what I mean? An English uh, prime minister or something. Charles Theodore Davis. Formal, huh? Very formal. I'm the furthest person from formal that you'll know. (laughs) (laughs) I can attest to that. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Speaking of Jamaica, Kingston, Jamaica, you were born. This has got to be interesting because this, you know, we've known each other a lot of years, but I've never got into your childhood with you. I want to talk about a young Charles Theodore or for the for the viewing audience, if you'd like to refer to him as Chile. I want to hear about a young Chile growing up in Jamaica. I think you moved to L.A. at the age of 10. But what was that early childhood like for you? Oh, man. Uh, trouble. That's what the T, they say Theodore, but I thought it meant trouble, stood for trouble. Charles T. Davis. I was, uh, you know, very, um, I was, you know, I mean, growing the, 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 the culture in Jamaica is an island culture. You know, we're an island like Puerto Rico, all these other places. Um, and, you know, the, the privileges that you have in the States, like going to school and, a lot of other things just aren't there, you know, like baseball wasn't there. You know, we played cricket and soccer and, you know, you, you didn't find a lot of kids growing up saying, I want to be a, uh, a major cricket player. You know, it's like kids growing up today wanting to be a PGA golfer. It, that costs money. You know what I mean? A lot of money. You got to have the country club to work at the, the pro to give you lessons, the, the clubs, the balls, everything, you know, it's, it's, it's golf's not a, a cheap sport. Um, and it's definitely not a, um, a hobby. <laughs> anyway, growing up in Jamaica for me was, um, very strict with, with my, sorry, this is my alarm, very strict with my, um, okay. Very strict with my family. And the, you know, everyone else. And so school was important. Uh, chores was important. You know, discipline was super important. Um, so, you know, I was only there till I was 10, but if you did all the things you had to do as a kid, you had all the privileges, which was, you could go hang out with your buddies at the beach, do whatever, you know, all that stuff, you know? So it, it was a lot different. We came here to the States, we came to LA in 70. And there was a, a little bit of a culture shock, but there was a lot of excitement because now you're in the United States. The only thing I was concerned with was trying to find out who was going to be my friends and who wasn't, you know. But it was it was a a bold move for my family and a and a really good move for for the kids for all of us. Well, I couldn't imagine. I mean, I, I I yeah, I went from New Jersey to California when I was 14 years old and I thought that I thought it was the end of the world. Like you're going to dad, you're taking me away from all my buddies in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a Jersey kid and I'm going out to, you know, surfs up California people in Jersey, kids in Jersey. They don't like California people. And I was one of them. And and I got out to California and I had the same thing. Like, what am I going to do? I got to make all new friends. I got to do this. And six months later, I'm going California ain't bad. (laughs) <laughs> California ain't bad. And well, for me, well, it was try doing you know, that with an accent. Right. That's okay. why I'm saying I can't relate to old. it. I mean, I, I had yeah. to do what I had to do. You're coming from a completely different culture. I mean, yeah. simple things like going to the gro- what's it like? Is it is it the same when you go to the grocery store, go to the movies, uh, 
yeah. how you live, going to school. Those all had to be challenges for you, especially at 10. How long was that acclimation process? Um, you know, I really can't say how long it took, but I can say that because of the difference in culture and the accent, that at times it was frustrating because you would talk to someone and you would completely understand everything they said to you. But with my accent, you know, it was always, what was that? What was that? You know, and it, it got frustrating. And then when you go to school and you know the answer to something your teacher asks you, and the, the one or two times you raise your hand and stand up and she goes, okay, Charles, explain uh, what I just asked. And you explain it with the accent and all the kids would laugh, you know. I mean, I wasn't very... Um, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? You know, uh, thin skinned. You know what I mean? I wasn't very thin skinned, so I took it. I thought it was all in fun. You know what I mean? Right. But I, because of that, I, I felt that I made friends a lot easier. You know, um, and there was a lot of teasing and a lot of name calling and a, a lot of kidding around. But I grew up in a really good neighborhood in L.A. You know, I grew up with some really good ball players. I mean, you know, Eric Davis, Strawberry, Eddie Murray, Ozzie Smith, all those people came from my neighborhood, you know? So it was a strong athletic neighborhood. I, I have named, but a few, you know, if you really want to think about it, Sparky Anderson went to my high school. So did Don Buford. So did the uh, Latchman brothers, the, con, you know, Billy Consolo and uh, Bobby Consolo. They all went to that high school, you know? So, I mean, it was an athletic neighborhood. So I thought sports, really enabled me to make friends faster. You know what I mean? Getting involved in sports without even knowing. I've never seen football played. I've never seen basketball played. I've never seen baseball played, you know, but at that age, watching the game being played and, you know, making friends and, uh, and, and then being involved with the kids in the neighborhood taught me the game. You know, it taught me the game while you play it. So that helped me uh, adapt a lot quicker than trying to adopt, adapt without sports. In Jamaica, is the number one sport soccer? Soccer, cricket, those are the two sports over there. So, so why do you think your eyes went to baseball? Was it the cricket influence or was it, no, I just yeah. like baseball? And I haven't even got cricket into it if you played my, other sports. Cricket was my favorite game in Jamaica. Oh, okay. So it, tra- it, so it makes game. sense in the States to translate into, all right, I'm a baseball player. Yeah. And when I saw baseball being played, I thought it was so fascinating, man, because in cricket, you, got, you have the flat bat, you have the two wickets, you know, uh, you got the knee pads. You can't really get on the mound and cock and throw as hard as you can. You run up. And your arms got to be straight when you deliver the ball. You know, you can't have the elbow bent, all that. You can bounce the ball. You have to protect the wicket, all that stuff, you know. And then when I saw baseball with a guy on a mound and bending his arm and just coming at you with everything he had and the hitter having a little round bat in his hand, I'm like, wow, (laughs) that's fascinating. (laughs) You know, how do you do that? How do you hit that ball with that little stick in your hand, you know? But it was so fascinating. It intrigued me to where I, my mind right away said, I, I need to learn how to play that game. I need to learn how to play that game. So that became my favorite game in the United States. You know, and then I played a little football in high school, terrible at basketball, you know, so I don't even, I'm not even a basketball fan. I'm sorry for 
you know, I, I would have to apologize to all the basketball fans and players out there. You know, I respect the sport. I respect the, the people that play it, the NBA guys. I know a few of them, but I am not a fan of basketball. I'll watch it. I watch basically playoffs and, you know, championship game and all that stuff, the final four, stuff like that. But baseball was the one thing that intrigued me. Baseball, and you wouldn't believe it, but uh, roller skating was the other thing. I saw roller skating, and I thought, that looks like fun, you know? Roller skate. So, I mean, you grew up right in yeah. that generation with the with the disco yeah. ball in, in the center of the uh, the rink. Oh, you grew up in roller skating in, in its heyday. Well, you know, not only that, but I grew up where they had the, the metal wheels on the roller skate, the cheap roller skates that had yeah. metal wheels. They were called street kings, you know, and the wheels yeah. weren't soft like they are now, you know, and. So if you're roller skating down the road and one of those metal wheels hit a pebble and it stops the rotation of it, you're going you're straight gone. down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> now when, they, when they came up with the, the roller derby uh, wheels, the softer wheels that would go over that pebble, oh, man, it was like night and day. You know, then we learned how to dance on them. We go to skating rinks and hung out. You know what I mean? It was fun. Mm-hmm. It was a good time. You went to Fremont High, then you transferred to Dorsey High. And yeah. another interesting fun fact, Chili Davis was a catcher. I think you were a catcher yeah. and a first baseman. Uh, why catching? You didn't know Bob Boone well, yet. Uh, no, I didn't know Bob until I played against <laughs> Bob, and, and then uh, I played for Bob. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I date way back, you know. I, I mean, you and I were at this golf tournament recently, and Fergie Jenkins was there. And I told you, I said, hey, you know, I took Fergie deep in a real game. You know, he looked at me, and you're like, you face Fergie? <laughs> isn't, that, you know? isn't that amazing? And I've been, you know, on, on this show, uh, we've, had, we've had a lot of guests, and it was amazing. I had a guest recently that actually faced my grandfather, and that was a first for me. Ooh. I'd never interviewed somebody that had faced Ray. And it was Jim Cott. He said, Booney, I faced Ray Boone. He goes, I threw to Bob Boone and uh, I dealt with Brett Boone running around the field because because dad and, and Kitty Cott were were teammates for yeah. for a couple of years in Philly. So that was interesting yeah. to me. And and somebody that, you know, because I knew my grandpa, obviously, from the time I I was born. And I knew Gramps as Gramps, but he was retired, you know, and he'd tell me stories mm-hmm. till I was blue in the face about uh, about his generation. But, you know, obviously, I never got to see him physically play. And I was talking to Kitty and he said, yeah, Ray Boone could hit, boy. And he goes, and I face him. And yeah. I'm like, that's really cool. I'm, I'm talking to somebody that actually faced my grandpa. It seems, you know, because it's so long ago. But, yeah, he that was that was that was a pretty cool thing for me for me to hear from yeah you're uh, very Jim fortunate Cotton. you and aaron and you know your dad and you, know, you guys came up in a baseball family and, and a successful one at that you know what i mean your grandfather your father you and your brother you know you guys have all been very good big league players you know not like you got a cup of coffee or something you spent some time in the big leagues you know and sometimes you you don't realize how fortunate you are you know how blessed you are you know, you be, sometimes we take it for granted. You know, like you and I talked about it the other day. I look back at my career and my baseball life, and 
you know, it was truly a blessing because for a kid coming to the States that at 10 years old, that didn't know anything about baseball, never saw it, never heard of it, didn't know any rules. I didn't have the courage to really try out for a team until I was 13. And I tried out for a team, you know, because I came here in August of 70. I was 10. January of 71, I turned 11. So two years later, I had enough courage to go try out for a team. I made the team, played one game, Booney. And the only reason I played that game was that one of the players on that team that summer, his family went on vacation, and they needed somebody to go play in his spot. And I wouldn't play. I didn't know the rules, you know. I don't remember where I played, outfield, first base, whatever. But the following year, I, tr- I went and tried out for a different team and made that team and actually started at first base. And it was a very good team because we played. We finished 21-0. It was at a park called Harvard Park in uh, Southern Cal. And, you know, Strawberry and a lot of ball players in the big leagues, when they were in the big leagues, they had what they called a program out there you know, at Harvard Park. All these guys used to get together and go hit there. But anyway, the, the, the coach's name, Horace Strother, was a big-time disciplinarian, but he taught us the game, you know. And at 14, I finally played, you know, more than one game in an organized, on an organized baseball team. And three years later, at 17, I got drafted out of high school. I went to the minor leagues. My first year in the minor leagues was 18, I mean, at 18 years old because I didn't sign after I draft. I got drafted. I stayed home and I played in a Connie Mack league. And the scout that drafted me, George Genovese, came to every game that summer and watched me play. He thought I wanted more money, but he didn't realize I was scared. I didn't think I was good enough to go play in, in professional baseball. You know what I mean? After three years, yeah. I just, I'm like, no chance. I'm not going out there. I kept thinking of Eddie Murray and Andre Dawson and stud players. You know, I'm not, I'm not good enough. So I was going to try to go to a college in LA and the scout came to every kind of game. I had a re- I was just starting to blossom as a player, so to speak. And I, you know, and not to cut the story short, I'll get back to it, but I think it was a benefit to me to have started that late because at 14 years old, I was in that learning, curiosity, retaining age, you know. So when I was told something, it, it meant the world to me, you know. And I didn't have to be told twice. But anyway, at 17, I got drafted. 18 was my first year of minor league baseball. 21, I was in the big leagues. And I look back and go, what happened? You know what I mean? How did that happen? Well, I think you, you brought up a great you, you brought up a great point when you said we tend when we're going through things, sometimes we, we tend to forget how lucky we are and, and we, we yeah. don't. And, and it's not that we don't appreciate it. I don't think I just think when we're in the game and we're in that one hundred and sixty two game grind i think we got so much on our mind who's pitching all right this next series who's pitching what's the what's the rotation Mm -hmm. what's the lineup and my swing oh my swing's great right now my swing's bad i gotta fix my swing i gotta go to early work i gotta i gotta look at film but you're right i mean once you once you retire and get out of the game at least for me is i look back and go wow i wish i would have spent a little Mm -hmm. more time 
and I did once in a once in a great while. But at, at Wrigley Field, when there was a break in the action, pitching change, just to look around and go, think of the people mm-hmm. that have come before us and played on those fields. And I get to do this for a living. I do this every day. Yeah. When I went to Fenway Park to look around, you know, my grandpa played there. Uh, let alone that, but but you know the great players of 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 the Red Sox. Old Yankee Stadium for me was the ultimate. It, it was like something you knew you were somewhere special where you're at Yankee Stadium, especially in this postseason. We'll get to that later because you you got to witness that firsthand. You mentioned George Genovese. You know, I got drafted by the Twins out of high school, and his name was right there, and they were the guys negotiating. So so that's really interesting uh, to me. Mm-hmm. You went – you took a year – or you took a while. You, you played some Connie Mack back when there was Connie Mack. Now it's all, you know, travel mm-hmm. ball and, and that. But Connie Mack, yeah. that, was the, that was the top uh, – that was the top Maybe. dog back then. Long Beach. Long Beach. Blair yeah. Field. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The elite. The, the best the of high school and junior college, they all played in that league, you know? So, you, yeah, you went to what? Uh, was a super scout. Yeah, he was. It's a, That's a big name guy right there. Well, you go to A-ball. Right away, I think you hit 281 out of the box. How was that yeah. for you? Because I, me being a college sign, you know, I signed when I, when I was just turning 21. Uh you signed obviously as as a high school player, eighteen years mm-hmm. old. You know, and we all think. Well, I I definitely thought when I was eighteen, I was the best player on the planet Earth. And how could you not take me with the number one overall pick? I ended up going to USC. It was the, I think it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Gave me a little time to grow up and mature. Uh, but some people are ready at eighteen to go to to go mm-hmm. professional. It seemed to go pretty smooth for you. Give me a little bit of a, a of a snapshot of that minor league and and like you said, 81, you get your cup of coffee in the big leagues as a 21-year-old. Well, you know, the thing is, um when I signed in September of 77, George called the Giants organization and asked if they would allow me to come to Arizona and participate in the instructional league. And you know that normally in order to do that, you would have had to play rookie ball or a ball somewhere. And they choose throughout the organization who they want to come to instructional league, you know? And since I hadn't played anywhere for the organization, George, whoever he talked to said, okay, send them out. So I came to Arizona, George got on a plane with me and, and, and flew over here with me. I've never been to Arizona before. Uh, we get here, we get in the hotel, and uh, next day we go out to the, to Phoenix State Municipal Stadium, and Hank Sauer is our manager. He's our head guy there. Remember Hank Sauer? He won an MVP in 1952 for the uh, Cubs, I think it was. Anyway, um, he's our head guy and our hitting coach. Now, on the flight here, I told George, I said, George, we're just talking. And I didn't realize what George, you know, George listened and didn't say anything. He listened to the kids call me Chili in, in the neighborhood when he came to my neighborhood. He never said a word about Chili. He called me Charles, 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 Charles all the time. We get on the plane. I say, George, I, I think I can switch hit. I'd never switch hit in a game before. I said, George, I think I can switch hit. And he didn't say a word. He goes, oh, okay. So we get here the first day of practice. You know, I'm not in a group. Hank doesn't even know I'm supposed to be here. No one knows. I just show up with George. 
put on the uniform, go to the outfield. I'm just kind of hanging out in the outfield. Had an old Spalding catcher's glove that I, you know, I had. And everyone, you know, took BP and, and, you know, asked the team, hey, everyone hit? And everybody went, yeah, yeah. He goes, okay, we're all done. Let's pack it up. Let's go in. And George jumps up and George goes, no, no, no. This kid hasn't hit yet. And Hank looks at him and goes, who the hell is that kid? <laughs> and he goes, this kid is our 11th round draft pick. And he, he was invited to come down here. And Hank was like, I wish somebody would have told me about that. He goes, kid, you want to hit? I said, yeah, I'd like to, uh, you know, if you don't mind. And he goes, oh, mind. You're part of this team. Get in the cage and hit. So we had a, a, a pitching coordinator named Frank Funk that was throwing BP. And Frank threw BP to me. right, And I'm hitting right-handed. And, you know, I took my rips or whatever. And he goes, you had enough? And I said, yeah, I had enough. And then George jumps up. He goes, no, no, no. This kid's a switch hitter. And that's from the conversation we had on the plane, and he never acknowledged it when I said it. So Hank looks at me and goes, is that true? I said, well, Hank, I, I can think I can hit left-handed. He goes, well, let's see it then. And I walk in there, and Frank's just laying it in there, and I hit a couple balls out of the ballpark, you know, left-handed. So after the, we finished, you know, all the kids came up, and I'm introducing myself as Charles Davis, and George goes, nope, nope, that's not his name, guys. This kid's name is Chili Davis. And he started the whole Chili Davis thing in baseball. Because I probably would have been known as Charles Davis, you know, but George made sure. So after we finished, I had to go up to Hank and I said, Hank, I just need to be honest with you. I'm not a switch hitter. I've never played in a game left-handed, never hit in a game left-handed, but I know I can switch hit. I know I can. And he goes, really? Well, I said, I'd like to learn. You know, I have never done it in a game. So he looks at me and he says, tomorrow, we show up on the field at 10 o'clock. I want you here at 9. We'll go down to the cage and we'll see what you got. Well, Booney, uh, we had just signed Bill Madlock, the Giants from Pittsburgh, to be uh -huh. our second baseman. And he came to instructional ball to learn how to play second base, you know. And he had a big gash in his hand. I don't know from what. So he couldn't hold it back to hit, but he could field and throw and everything. So I had the DH for Bill Madlock, you know, and I went down to the cage that first day. And you remember those machines with the two big white wheels? Yeah. I had never, I had never hit off a machine before. They set the machine up and I stepped in there and that thing went, boom, spat it out and went, boom, behind me. And I went, holy crap, what was that? <laughs> you know? So now I'm trying to hit this thing. And I, I walked away that day with the, Biggest bone bruise, thumb bruise from getting jammed so much, you know. And so game started, and I'm DHing for Bill Madlock. And it, after a while, I started figuring it out. It's like, don't try to hit the ball so hard. Just put the barrel on it. Just put the barrel on it. Well, that, that, that uh, uh, instructional season, I think if you look up the record, I think I hit like 343, you know, and played in a lot of games. And the left side – became natural, sort of natural, you know? I felt comfortable. So next year I went to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and that was my first year playing really in a league and having to be a switch hitter. And I'm not going to lie to you, there are times when I was 0 for 2 left-handed and there was a right-hander on the mound, and I'm like, I'm not going 0 for today. So I'd put the right-handed helmet on, jump around, and, you know, right away, you know, they're throwing you sliders, <laughs> you know? 
Right. And you just sit on one and whack, I get a hit. And then I jump back on the left side for the last at bat because all I really wanted was one hit, you know, I didn't want to go over, but, um, as time went on, it, it became more and more comfortable. And, you know, uh, I said, okay, that's it. And I, I'll tell you the truth. I have hit righty righty in the big leagues, uh, a couple of times once because I stunk so bad left-handed and I got in a lot of trouble for that with the giants with Roger Craig that I, we were in Montreal and I said, forget it. I'm, going up to the plate right-handed. I'm not going to, you know, we had a couple runners in scoring position, and I'm like, you know, I, I can hit righty, no problem. And the other time was uh, 1998 with the New York Yankees. Um, after coming back from an injury, I um, we had a split doubleheader, uh, 1 o'clock, 7 o'clock doubleheader. We played a 1 o'clock game, and I, we kind of laid down, hung out for a while, and I got up, ran to the cage to get ready for the second game, and, pulled an oblique swinging left-handed and I went into Joe Torrey and I said, Joe, I hope you don't get mad, man, but I think I just pulled my oblique. He goes, Oh no, no, no. I just sent Tim Raines home. <laughs> he sent rock home, you know, cause he figured I was getting all the at-bats that day. And he goes, what am I supposed to do now? I said, well, nothing. I can hit right-handed now, <laughs> you know, it doesn't hurt right-handed. He goes, You'll do that? I said, come on. I can, I'm, a, I'm a switch hitter. And I actually went up to the plate and got a couple of hits right-handed. Because in my mind, right away, wherever I was facing was so glad to see me on that side that fastballs were out of the equation. It was all sliders. So right, I'm, and it, make, it makes it predictable. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting slider. The guy had a slider, and I'm sitting slider. And you know, I'm right. going, pow, got a base hit, you know? Just don't chase the bad ones. That's but that's right. a, that's an interesting story of how things got started, you know. So it's really it's re, it's really interesting. I mean, I I I'm in awe of people that can can switch it because when I I think I was a sophomore in high school and they said, hey, you know, Brett, why don't you you hit left handed? It's really advantage as you go up the ladder in 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 the game. <laughs> and I just thought. Why should I hit left-handed? Well, obviously, the advantage is, you know, lefties always have an advantage. There's more right-handed pitchers. And I tried it. Not really willing, but gave it an effort. I did it for a couple weeks, and I just ended up putting it down after a while. It's like, I'm so bad left-handed. You know, I'm just so awkward. I couldn't get it. I didn't feel natural at all. So I'm always amazed at the guys that can switch hit. Because it was so hard for me. I, I guess some people are just born and it's like, no, lefty is fine. The only thing I can do left handed, Chili, the only thing in my life I can do left handed is throw a frisbee. <laughs> well, you know, I can. Oh, Dan, Dan, our, our, our voice of the podcast must be listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, though, for all the dads out there, Booney. That listens to this podcast and they want yeah. to push on their kid to be a switch hitter because I've seen mm-hmm. it happen so much. Oh, you're going to hit lefty and you're going to hit righty. You know, the one thing I can, a couple of things I can tell them um, if you're going to be a good left handed switch, uh, be a good left handed hitter and you're naturally right handed, you better know how to hit righty. You better have a little idea how to hit right because you're going to find that, you know, you're going to lose. Um, something, you know, like if I, I wouldn't have switch hit 
if I couldn't hit for power because I hit for power right-handed in high school, okay? And it wasn't only about hitting for power with me. I had to be able to hit for power, but I had to be able to hit consistently, every pitch thrown to me, every area thrown to me, you know? I had to learn how to do that. And it, it, it has to come to you somewhat natural. If it's a struggle and you're a good hitter right-handed already or a good left-handed hitter, then why develop a weaker side? You know what I mean? Why even go through that? You know, um, Dick T. Snow was a switch hitter. Yeah, he, he, canned, he canned right-handed, didn't he? Canned right-handed late yeah, in his he, career. Yeah. And, you know, we talked him out of switch hitting when he was with the Angels. When he went to the Giants, he was just a left-handed hitter because he was a natural left-handed hitter. You know, right. and he produced. You know, but right-handed, there was a weakness there that he was never going to overcome. You know, for me, when I learned how to switch hit, there was no weakness. And I, me learning how to switch hit started from being a kid before I even played uh, organized baseball and playing little games on the streets with the guys that I grew up with. We had a game called strikeouts. Remember strikeouts, Booney? Where you well, you got to explain the rules. A, a square on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. And you get a tennis ball and you stand not 60 feet, six inches, but 40 feet from your guy and you blow him away. But you couldn't hit on your natural side because then the game would take too long, you know? So you right. had to hit on your unnatural side. So, you know, you'd be a lot more strikeouts and hits in that game. Well, I found playing that game that I was a tough strikeout. That speed, the fastball or whatever, didn't phase me. For some reason, it just felt comfortable, you know? So that is why I made that statement to George. Because I used to goof around in high school and take batting practice left-handed and felt great. I've seen kids that can do it. Javier Baez is one of those kids. You know, I coached that, you know, Jackie Bradley Jr. has a decent swing. I guarantee you Mookie Betts can probably swing left-handed. He's such a talented athlete, you know. But I've seen kids that can do it, but they just don't. Because they feel they're just a good enough right-handed hitter, a one-sided hitter. So why try to take the time to try to develop a weaker side. And for me, it was right. an advantage because it kept me in the lineup every day, every day, you know, and I, I, I can truly say without bragging that I had never played on a team from little league, except for that first year to the end of my career where I wasn't an everyday player, you know, an everyday player. I went to spring training. I knew I was going to start. So, you know, and I was fortunate for that. And I think switch hitting did that. But if you're going to do it, you've got to be all in. And, you know, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. You got, you're two hitters. You're two completely different hitters. Right. No you got two swings. To, you got two. Yeah. You got two swings to work on. You know, the obvious advantage, you never have anything breaking away from you. And because I'll, I'll give you an example. Yeah. As a hitter, as a hitter, Chili, for me, I had, I have, I had two different swings. I had a swing. Uh, my normal stance was for a normal, you know, third, fourth, fifth guy in the rotation. I had that AB, and and I could essentially look for a fastball, put my nose on the outside corner, and adjust everything else. Those number one and number twos that had two two plus pitches, 
I was picking mm-hmm. one that day. I was picking one and yeah. I was going to wait him yeah. out. And that's how I hit. And then my third yeah. approach was any lefty, maybe with the exception of a Randy Johnson, but any lefty, I mm-hmm. would kind of, and you probably couldn't see it with the naked eye, but I would close my stance a little bit and I could hover out over that plate because I wasn't oh, yeah. worried about it. I, I wasn't worried about anything breaking away from me. You know, maybe, mm-hmm. a, you know, a guy that had a really good changeup, he'd turn it over and it'd fade away. But nothing was matter. that snappy. It wasn't a John Smoltz, Pedro Martinez slider off the plate that I had to worry mm-hmm. that I didn't see out of his hand. So I had three different swings. And I just thought, you know, whenever I was in a slump or struggling and I'd look at the board and we got a lefty, I didn't care who it was. Like, thank goodness it's a lefty because mm-hmm. I'm not seeing the ball out of that righty's hand. And I can just <laughs> hover out over – I can hover out over that plate and, and find a way to get a knock. So uh, yeah. it, it the, the advantages of that switch hit, and I used to talk to Chipper about it, it was – Brett, it's a yeah, it's a big advantage because I could, you know, I, I have that ball breaking into me all the time, but I gotta work on two swings too, you know. And and you think about yeah. double double the work, it's tough enough with one swing, let alone two. Oh so so, yeah. so the advantages, exactly. you know, there, there's there's advantages and then there's there's disadvantages, disadvantages. to it. Um, well the disadvantage is I'll tell you one of the disadvantages, and I'll guarantee Chipper Jones and some really good switcher switch hitters, Eddie Murray's a good friend of mine. Bobby Bo, all these guys, the disadvantage is there are times when you struggle on one side, you know? I could be struggling left-handed, and all I'm seeing are right-handers. And I might have a left-hander start a game. I'm struggling left-handed, but I feel great right-handed, you know? And all of a sudden, I'm facing these left-handers as starters, and I get a crucial situation in the game, you know, and, and a manager will walk out there and go, to the bullpen, bring the righty in. Because he knows you're struggling right, left-handed, you know? Um, I, had an, I had a story. We played in Toronto, okay? And um, Pat Hentgen, remember him? I do. Pat, Pat Hentgen started the game. And um, Cito Gaston's man, managing the Blue Jays. And we're in Toronto, and I hit two homers lefty off Pat Hentgen that, that game. And the game was still close. They had a real good team. You know, the game was still close. And I had a situation come up where I could drive in a couple runs uh, left-handed. And Cito went out to the mound and took, I don't know if it was Hentgen that was still in the game, but it was a right-hander, took him out and gestured to the umpire, bring the lefty in. So now I had to go take my helmet off, put the right-handed helmet on, and I'm standing there. When Cito walks off the mound, he looks at me and he goes, you know, in the dome there, he goes, let's see how good you are on this side. Like that, you know, and I'm smiling going, really? You know, so he bring in this lefty called, I think his name was Luis Castillo. Little lefty, didn't throw very hard, little two-seamer chained up in a slider. But I had faced him so many times, Castillo never pitched me in. He stayed away. He he showed me a two-seamer on the black running off the plate. Then he tried to back that with a changeup that looked the same in the same location on the same plane. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to – I'm looking middle out over, and if you leave something out out over, I'm going to drive you to right center. Well, he did, and I hit a bullet to right center. hit like a a foot from the top of the fence for a double. I get on second base, drove the runs in. I moved to third somehow, 
And uh, I looked in the dugout, and Tito was bowing to me. <laughs> That's right. Those are, those are the, the bows. Yeah, Tito. Like, those guys, those are the bows we love. Yeah, and it was funny because he was just having fun with it, and I was having fun with him, you know. But you know, it's that's an, it's an event when you're swinging good from both sides of the plate. Oh man, you feel so sexy. You're like the you're you know nobody gets me out now. You know, doesn't matter who goes out there. But I, I agree with you. You know, when I face the Roger Clemens, the Randy Johnsons, the Pedro Martinez, the guys like that, you know, you're everybody's going to have a rough day. And as as a guy that does damage on your team, and they know you're one of those guys, you know, they're going to pitch you real difficult, real tough. So then you had to say to yourself, basically, I know you're good. You know, I'm good, you know, and I'm just, I'm up here looking for a mistake before two strikes. I'm not going to chase you all over the place because you're not, you're not going to just lay pitches in here and go, go sit down. I'm not one of those guys you do that to. So you're going to pitch me careful. You're going to miss a little here, miss a little there. I'm hoping you make the mistake that I'm looking for. And if you do, I'm on it, you know? And so, you know, I knew Roger threw hard and he's going to come at you with heaters. You knew Randy threw hard, heater, backdoor slider. Pedro, on the other hand, you know, and we talk about those guys, but then you had the David Cones, you had uh, the Gubazas, the Mario Sotos, and Nolan Ryans. Back in my day, I faced Nolan, I faced uh, Carlton, I faced Seaver. You know, I faced a lot of quality pitchers back then that, you know, you know, were just intimidating because part of the game in, when I came up in the 80s, the early 80s, it was still uh, intimidation. Intimidation was still a big part of the game, you know. O two 2 knock you on your butt, you know, and what do you do? You get up, dust off, and go, okay, glad you got that out of your system. What you got for me now, you know? But it's a little, you know, it's, the game's not that way now. I mean, there are guys that will miss in or pitch in, but, you know, I, I don't know if it's ever intentional that someone would hit you or not care if they hit you. Back then, they didn't care if they hit you. In an 0-2 count where you have the upper hand on a hitter, you don't want to hit him. Now I see a guy get hit 0-2 and the pitcher's upset. Back in the 80s when I came up, you get drilled 0-2, they turn around, give me another ball, rub it up, okay, let's get the next guy. You know, they sent you a message, you know? Mm -hmm. So... It was a different well, era. It was a different. Well, those guys you mentioned, you know, the Seavers, the Carl, that, that, that's, those are the guys I'm talking about. You know, the DeGroms of today, the Scherzers. Yeah. You're not, yeah. not going to hit both their pitches. At least I'm not. I, no. You know, I can touch no. it. I can touch it. Okay. Is putting it in play, is that good enough? I'm talking about hurt you with an at-bat. Mm -hmm. So I got to get on one or the other. Randy Johnson's pitching. I'm not going to hit his fastball and his slider. I can hit it. I'm yeah. not saying I can't hit it. I'm saying I'm not going to hurt you on both. I'm not going to hit a ball in the yeah. gap for a double. Uh, so I had to pick one. And sometimes I was right and sometimes I was wrong. But yeah. but, the, gonna, the, yeah. but the thing was, I had to have an approach and an unwavering approach. And, and I see it's fun for me in today's game to watch hitters that do hit like that because you can yeah, tell exactly and i watch him and i go this guy's well, a smart smart hitter he hits not only is not only is he sitting on a pitch but he's taking in consideration the game 
what he's done in that series, who's in the bullpen, mm-hmm. who's on the mound, what his history is with that guy in the mound, who's catching, what does he tend to call that catcher? So it, it's a cat and mouse mm-hmm. game that we could talk for hours oh, yeah. about. That that is the game inside the game, yeah. but it's fascinating to me. Him? I who's right behind him, you know. Right, who, right. Is it is that guy hot? Is that guy hot or is he cold? Raking. Yeah, or is he cold as ice? You know, then is this guy going to pitch to me? Is he not going to pitch? What time of game is it? Is it the first inning, the third inning, the seventh inning? You know? Right. What's the score? What's the score of the game? A lot of things. And the thing about these guys, the Scherzers and the Groms, and I was fortunate to coach with the Mets the last three years, and I got got to be around the Grom, who was a really good kid, really good young man. He's just one of my favorite people. You know, and I love talking to him you know, from a hitter to a pitcher standpoint. Um, but these guys, are they're that good. And when I talk to my hitters about facing a Scherzer or a Nola or someone like that, I'm like, listen, guys, we know they have good stuff, okay? We know they have good stuff. But when I watch them pitch, what goes through my mind is, do they make mistakes? Because as a good hitter, I don't hit a pitcher's good pitch, and, and, and I'm not, my success isn't built on hitting a pitcher's pitch. My success is built on hitting mistakes that he makes, okay? So do they make mistakes, and where do they make most of their mistakes? So therefore, I don't really watch the pitcher as a coach a lot of times. I'm sitting there locked in on the catcher because I see where the catcher's set up, and then I see where he receives the ball, and I see where he's set up, and I see where he receives the ball. And is this guy dotting up that glove every time he's set up on the outside corner? Bang, on. Inside corner, bang. No, it's not happening. Scherzer doesn't pitch that way. No pitcher. In the, when a pitcher is that on, the whole lineup is going to have a rough day. Okay? Scherzer doesn't pitch that way. Scherzer misses a lot of spots. Okay? And so does Jake. You know, and every other pitcher in the big leagues. But the thing about them is their stuff is so good they, they get away with those mistakes, okay? They get away with those mistakes. But as a hitter, I've got to understand that if I get three at-bats off Scherzer, chances are I'm lucky to I'm, – I'm happy to get one hit. And if I get two, I'm, I had a really nice day. If I get three, oh, my goodness, I'm partying tonight. You know? <laughs> right. But you know what I mean? But I, if I'm willing to give up. And at bat, and I'm not saying just give it away, but I'm willing to get the two strikes looking for a mistake in an area that I hit the best. You know what I mean? And, hey, you got part of the plate. You know, you got the outer third. You know, you know, a lot of coaches say, hey, you give up half the plate. You take the middle in to give them middle away. I tell my hitters the only time I give up half of anything is in a divorce. Okay? So I ain't giving up half of the plate. <laughs> you know, I'll give them a third of the plate, and I'm taking two-thirds. Okay. Right. Now that's before two strikes. And then when I get to two strike count, I know the plate is not, you have the strike zone, Booney, and you have the hitting zone. Those are two completely different things. The strike zone is defined by 17 inches wide from knee to, to letters or to whatever it is, numbers, letters, supposed to be. Okay. That's the strike zone. Okay. The hitting zone how many times have you gotten a pitch that's above the letters and hammered it for a single? 
are below the knees and hammered it for a single, or off the inside corner, or off the outside corner and barreled it. Because you've got a 34-plus inch bat in your hand, and you're trying to cover a 17-inch plate with arms that can reach. You know what I mean? So the hitting zone is a lot different than the strike zone sometimes. You watch guys complain about, you know, that ball was a ball off the plate. Yeah, I know. It was. You know, it was. But could you have hit that pitch? Could you have put that ball in play? Could you have fouled that ball off with a two-strike count? Because in two-strike situations, I'm not trying to cover the just the strike zone anymore. Now is where there is no home plate, but I've got to let my brain tell me that's good enough. Boom, I can't, I can't afford to take that. Let me get, just get a piece of that. You know what I mean? I mean, that's the difference in, in being such a good two-strike hitter. One of the drills that I did with my, my, some of my hitters was to take a towel. We go to two-strike practice, practice that two-strike approach and cover the plate and say, there is no home plate. But now you're going to try to stay on things that you think you can get to. Because if you feel like you could have done something with that pitch, that umpire behind home plate is probably most likely going to call it a strike at some point. Without, without a doubt. Chili, when I was, you know, I, I got to a point in my career and it took me a while, but I, I I didn't want to go back to the home, to the dugout going, oh, man, he made a really good pitch. No, that doesn't matter if he made a good pitch. My job with two strikes is to spoil a good pitch, to Mm -hmm. live to fight another day. And the thing I did, and it was kind of extreme, is I would would lower my stance and I would choke up on the bat an inch. And all that told Mm -hmm. me was not – it wasn't a big deal that I was choked up, but now I taught – I took the thought process out of it because all of a sudden my body's in a different position. My hands are different Mm -hmm. on the bat. My brain knows that. So I don't have to do any thinking now. I'm automatically, my brain knows I'm in battle mode. So anything close, I'm fouling off. And hopefully eventually they hang me that breaking ball. They throw me that heater out over the plate where I can get a knock the other way. I I gave a little power with two strikes and I, and I still struck out, but I, I had a lot more success with two strikes once I took that approach. And you're right. I don't see that a lot in today's game. You see somebody, you know who I saw do it? And I thought this guy is wise beyond his years, especially in a a generation where, you know, strikeouts are at the all time high. But I saw a young Juan Soto, 19 years old. Mm -hmm. This guy's hitting ball. He's hitting balls the other way, like a like a right handed pull hitter. But he had yep. a two-strike approach when he was 19 years old. I said, that blew my mind yep. right there. I said, nobody, especially in today's generation, nobody has a two-strike approach, an obvious two-strike approach that he changed to. And yep. I said, this guy's going to be unbelievable. And right now he's, you know, arguably, if not the, very good. Uh, one very of the good. best hitters in the game. Yeah, he's going to be an MVP. You know, the kid's that good. But let me tell you something, Booney, that you just said uh, that I really loved. You know, first of all, a two-strike approach, yeah, you can do mechanical, you can make a mechanical adjustments, which you did. You know, you choked up an inch and you had a different setup for your two-strike approach. But, you know, you might have made those mechanical adjustments, but in your brain, your mind, you knew you were in battle mode, like you said. You were in battle mode. And when you're in battle mode and, you know, you're, you're, 
behind the wall, you know, and now you're, you know, you got to be a little defensive up there. You know, number one, you got to lose the vanity and you got to say power is out of the equation here. Oh, I'm not saying I probably won't get a pitch or mistake and pop being short, hit it out of the ballpark anyway. That's happened to all of us. But you can't think power. Power is out of the equation, number one. Number two, you have to work off the guy's fastball, if you, especially if he has a good fastball. But you can't be in a rush to get the head out on the fastball because that's not a two-strike approach. You can't, I'm going to get the head out on the fastball. No. If you're fouling a fastball off to the right a little bit, if you're a little late, a little late, a little late, but you're, you're still clipping it, you're still clipping it, you're fighting, fighting, fighting. Like you said, all of a sudden, some smart catcher or smart pitcher out there decides, well, you know, he's on the fastball. Let me, let me uh, hang, throw him the slider. Well, if you're staying behind and you're not thinking get the head out on the fastball and you're not so hard to the fastball, it gives you time to recognize the slider and maybe do something with it or maybe not swing at it, you know? So first and foremost, power is out of the equation in two-strike count. And, 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 if, and if you're a little late on the fastball, no need to speed up. You can't be late on a fastball and go, oh, man, I got to get the head out. I should have hit that pitch hard. Because as soon as you say that, boom, here comes a changeup. Here comes a slider. Here comes something else. You know, you're fighting, 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 fighting till the guy may hopefully makes a mistake. Now, one thing that I tell my guys in two-strike approach, um, especially my non-speedy guys, and, and I think people, hitters need to understand this. You're non-speedy guys. You got them in a first and third or bases loaded one-out situation or a runner at first, first and second, whatever double play situation they're in, and they're in two-strike mode. I'm, I, I'll tell my guys, listen, I don't want you to just put anything in play because if you just put the ball in play, you're doing exactly what the guys want you to do. A little weak ground ball, double play, they're out of the inning. I want you to take your cuts because if you strike out, and, you know, the guy behind you gets the hit. He's got to face one more guy. And if you do get the barrel, take a cut and a good pitch or a pitch you can hit, hit it and fly out or whatever, you might still hit into a double play, but you're not just re reacting and putting anything in play. You know what I mean? that make any sense? It makes a lot of sense. This is going to blow your mind, mm -hmm. too. And, and this is, you know, a lot of guys couldn't relate to my two-strike approach. And, and I was probably in the minority of doing this. You know what I would do with two strikes, Chili? I'd sit on his slowest pitch. So if he's got a 78-mile-an-hour curveball, an 84-mile-an-hour slider, and a 94-mile-an-hour fastball, I'm sitting on 78, and I'm shortening my hands as much as I can so I can flick and foul it off. If you get it up and away, mm -hmm. boom, I might be able to hit one in the gap. But you're not going to beat me. On that cookie curveball, mm -hmm. even if he makes a good pitch with the curveball, I'm looking for it. But my mind, for some reason, I was able to get the bat and foul off. You know, the toughest yeah. pitch in that situation was that black fastball in. And I know mm -hmm. I'm the minority when I say that to you, but that's what I used mm -hmm. to do. And, and, and I remember talking to Edgar about it. He goes, I don't know how you do that. I said, I don't know either, yeah. but it works for me. I said, I sit on the slowest yeah. pitch and I fight off everything else. And uh, it, it was a weird thing, but it, but it worked for me. Well, you had a two-strike approach. See, right. all you're asking of hitters, of your hitter, is to have a two-strike approach. You are not going to have a good two-strike approach if you don't practice 
the two strike approach. And, and, and secondly, if you don't recognize when you're in, in that role, you're in two strike mode. And that doesn't mean, oh, two, one, two, two, two. And then you go wailing after a three, two pitch. When you're in three, two count, you're still in a two strike uh, approach. And the thing about three, two approach is that you can't say, oh man, if this guy paints, I got to cover it. Or if he paints here, three, two gives me a little bit more of a luxury than two, two, one, two, or oh, two. Because now he's got one pitch to make and I got one decision to make. So therefore, I try to tell myself, three, two, I'm looking for a mistake, a pitch I can handle, or I'm walking. I'm ready to hit a mistake. Because if he dots one up and it's, you know, I know I'm in two strike count. If he throws it on the, on the black, I'm going to fire at it because, you know, I know I got to cover the plate or the, my, my zone. But I'm not looking for that bastard pitch. I'm looking for a mistake. Because this guy is in strike mode and he goes, I got to throw a strike here. I want to be ready for that. And if he's saying, I don't have to pitch to this guy, I'm still going to try to get him to chase. If I'm looking for everything, I, chances are I'm going to chase. So I tend to treat a 3-2 account, a 3-2 count, like a 2-0 count sometimes. You know, you're either going to make a mistake or you're not going to pitch to me. Yep. You know, and when you look at it there, you have one pitch to throw and I have one decision to make. 3-2 in the major leagues right now is one of the biggest chase strikeout counts there is in baseball. Because pitchers today aren't giving in. They're taught to throw their nastiest pitch, you know, unless you're just a career one, 100 hitter, which, you know, you shouldn't be in the big leagues if that's the case, you know? Right. You should, you and, know. and the thing, the thing about it is, yeah, it, a lot of these guys, they're secondary, they're slider. They, they have just as good a chance throwing a slider for a strike as they do a fastball. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, if you understand that in two-strike count, even 3-2, it's not guaranteed you're going to get a fastball. It, it just goes Everything back to what you said. When it just goes back to what you said in the in the few times being a switch hitter, when you decided to go, all right, I'm going to go righty on righty. And what did, was the first thing you told me? I know he's going to throw me a slider. Isn't exactly. that why we play the game? I tell these hitters all the time. the The key to the game is eliminating a pitch. Okay, eliminating eliminating, pitch, yeah. eliminating a side of the plate, eliminating a pitch, whatever's better for you. Chile, I used to love getting hit by pitches. Not that I liked how it felt, but man, I could mm-hmm. I could go into my Oscar trying to win an Oscar mode like it really hurt. I'd peek out at the pitcher to see if he felt bad for me because I knew he didn't mean to hit me. If I can get mm-hmm. him to feel bad for me, guess what I just did? <laughs> next next at bat, yeah. what's what's he not gonna throw? He's not going to throw me a fastball in. He's not going to throw me yeah. a fastball in. And it had just I just eliminated a pitch by by being a baby yeah. and pretending like it hurt more than it did. It's just that cat and mouse game. I loved it. As soon as I could eliminate a side or certain catchers, my first bat, you throw me a fastball way, I hit one in the gap or I hit one out the other way. Guess what I'm not getting next at bat? Fastball mm-hmm. away. So it's either fastball in, probably for show, or he's mm-hmm. going to go with the soft stuff. Man, I got him set up for yeah. a potential really good game right now. And that's the and battle that a lot which of... Which one you want to fire at, the fastball in or the soft stuff? 
Right. Yeah, and that's why I try to tell money. young hitters, let's eliminate a pitch. If you can eliminate a pitch, man, you're, you're winning the game mm-hmm. right now. Cause what do most of us do when we're struggling and we we're not hitting anything, we're going up there. We're vulnerable to every pitch. So everything's getting us out. We don't know what's coming. We don't have a clue because they're getting us out on every pitch. Well, the data in the game right now, Booney, gives these guys what they feel is an advantage. So you get a, a scouting report on a guy, and he says he's 80% fastball, you know, 15% slider, you know, and 3%, I mean, uh, uh, 5% change-ups, you know? So the guy is a fastball pitcher. Yeah, but his slider is still a good slider. So, you know, a lot of times these young kids look at these numbers and they say 80% fastball, 15% slider. And I try to tell them, I say, listen, when you faced that guy the last time, was he 80% fastballs to you? No, he threw me all sliders. Well, those numbers don't pertain to you. You see what I'm saying? Those numbers are generic league average numbers, you know? Correct. Take into account your personal – Right. Take into account what you've personally done against him. If Chili Davis comes to the mm-hmm. plate in the last two at bats, he's gone deep on heaters, inner half of the plate. I don't care what the stats say, but we need to be yeah. smart enough as hitters to look at the stats and go, well, that's not for me. You know, when is it? Is it yep. t- in a 2 2 game in the eighth inning, or is it the leadoff hitter of the game? Oh, he's 80% mm-hmm. fastballs in an 0 count. When? Yeah. Who's he pitching to? Is it exactly. Ichiro or is it me? You know, yeah, it's amazing, yeah, and, and and it's just not you know, that I mean, simple. Yeah, there's a lot of things that you have to take into consideration. What you were talking about earlier, eliminating a pitch, is just being one step ahead. Because everything we do as hitters, we don't control the game. The pitchers control the game. Even though we're on offense, they're the ones controlling the game. You know, they have the ball. You know, so you know when you talk about a hitter, we're all guest hitters. What do we guess 90% of the time? Fastball. You know, we're guessing mm-hmm. fastball 90% of the time. You know, Educated so, approach. You know, <laughs> yeah. But there are, there are times when I can leave that fastball or I can leave a certain zone and say, you know what, I'm looking here or I'm looking for this pitch. Why? Because every time he gets in that count and I'm watching the game, that's, first, that's very key. Watch the game. Because if you're watching the game, the game's going to tell you something. Every time this guy gets in a 2-0 count, he throws his backdoor cutter to lefties, you know, and I'm a lefty every time I've watched it. So now I'm 2-0. I'm in an advantage count. I mean, yeah, you know, I would love to get a fastball right down the middle and just turn on it, but that's not what this guy's been doing. So now I step out and say, you know, I have the liberty and, 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 and the count in my favor and not to where I can look for that backdoor cutter for one pitch. One pitch. I can guess backdoor cutter with them for one pitch. It's not the end of the bat. It's definitely not the end of the world. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Fastball in comes in, and I'm leaning out over for a backdoor cutter. Guess what? I'm jumping away. Strike one? Okay, I was wrong. But, man, Brett, if I'm right, if the game told me something and I'm right and that guy gets that backdoor cutter on the plate, I'm hammering it. I'm hammering it. And the thing I tell guys is when you're in advantage counts, like OO is an advantage count because there's a decision. Do I swing OO or do I go in auto tank OO? You know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. All, all is an advantage count. And I like to swing all because sometimes that's the best pitch I get to hit, you know. But in certain situations, um, the biggest thing I do, say, for instance, all is like a 3-0 swing. Booney's hitting. He's in a 3-0 count. And the uh, manager looks at him and goes, hey, swing away, you know. What do you, what's, what's the first thing that enter your mind? First of all, I don't want to be in between with the swing. I want to take my rips, but I want to take my rips at a good pitch that I can hit hard. So how do you make that decision in less than a second? That ball's coming at you. You know what I mean? How do you make that decision? Well, in my mind, one thing that makes, allows me to make that decision is the height of the pitch. Pitch height, especially when a guy has a change up and a slider or something that I can chase or beat in the ground. I don't want to do that oh oh and I definitely don't want to do it 3-0, but I do need to raise the on my zone. And if he hangs a slider, it's still a good pitch to hit. If he throws a fastball up by my thighs, I can hit that pitch. So now pitch height becomes very important in that count. And I talk to my guys about that, pitch height, pitch height, pitch height and advantage counts. Because now you don't have to go down after anything. If it's up and out over the plate, a down and away pitch is hard to hit. But if that pitcher elevates that pitch up and out over the plate, is not a good pitch to hit, Booney? That's right there by your eyes. Drop the barrel on it, pow, gone, opposite field. You know what I mean? So pitch height becomes very important. You know, so when you talk about little intricacies in an approach, you know, you simplify it. You simplify it by saying, you know, like a left-handed hitter in a second and third no-out situation facing a right-hander or he needs to move a runner over, you know, you can be in between or your face, you know, I'm a left-handed hitter. I'm in between. Will this guy throw me away and try to get me to roll over and maybe hit something back to him and the runner don't move? Or is he going to come in knowing I'm trying to pull and try to jam me, you know? So now you're kind of in between. I'm like, forget that. I'm climbing right on top of the dish. I'm in pull mode. Throw me something. I'm pulling everything. Keep it that simple. Cause I need to pull the ball to move that runner over. I need to pull the ball to get that runner in from third and move the other runner over. And I mean, you know, now today with the shifts, things are a little different, but I like to feel as a hitter. And I, when I talk to my hitters, I don't want to try to pull the ball and go to left field at the same time. I like to be more one directional. I'm going to do one thing here in this pitch, you know, uh, trying to be do both. is kind of like going to a bar and you got two guys approaching you. And, and you know you're going to have to get in a fight with both of them because they're together, and they won't ever back off. And you're trying to get them to back off. Now, you can punch the guy on the left looking at the guy on the right, but you're really not going to hit him with any force, and it's just going to upset both of them. Now you get your butt kicked. Or you can keep backing up and say, okay, I'm going to take my chances on this guy on the right, but I'm going to knock this guy out on the left. So now you're in one zone, one direction, boom, and you hit him, and he's out. And this guy on the right might get a punch in, but if he doesn't knock you out, it's one-on-one. You know what I mean? So basically, yeah. that's what happens in advantage count. Hey, I'm looking for this pitch. I'm looking for this pitch right here until two strikes. Now, if you the guy on the left appears, strike one on the black, hey, so what? I can't hit them both at the same time. I'm looking for this pitch in this area. You know? And if the pitcher can do that twice, then guess what? I'm in two-strike mode. I didn't get my pitch I was looking for. I'm willing to, you know, battle through the at-bat now. You know, and in 162 games, 600 and something at-bats, if you're that freaking disciplined, you're going to do some damage, and you're going to have some quality at-bats. You know? Yeah, I had you a kid did. I... told me in 2019, and I won't keep harping here, he says, 
Shelly, you keep telling us to raise the bottom of our zone, raise the bottom of your zone. You know, but I'm a good low ball hitter, so I like the ball down there. And, you know, because I like the ball down there, that's where my damage is done. But, you know, I accept the fact that I'm going to chase the pitcher. I'm not a good high ball hitter. In the middle of a meeting, and I looked at him and I go, really? I said, so you can look up a little bit higher than your knee and hit a ball? You know, have a little discipline. The guy's throwing sinker change-ups to you. He goes, no, I, I like the pitch down. I said, okay, I'm not telling you to swing at the pitch at your chest, but you just said something to me that I want to question. And he goes, what's that? I said, you said you're not a good high ball hitter. You don't hit the high pitch that well. He goes, no, I don't. I said, so why do you swing at it so much? And he didn't like that. <laughs> he, he, didn't, he didn't have an answer. No, it's yeah, it's and it all goes back to the st- two strikes too. Trust in yourself. Yeah. I'd go up. Yeah, the exactly. base is loaded, nobody out. Chili, I swear, sixty percent of the time I'm sitting on a breaking ball, and yep. and a lot of times I got it. Sometimes I was wrong, but and and I'd wait out a few pitches. And and the better you feel about your two strike approach, the less oh, yeah. scared scared you are to get to two strikes. You know, that makes a exactly. huge difference exactly. in, in the course of a game in the course exactly. of a season. So, all right. Yeah, a lot of exactly. talk. That That's that's a lot of fun. Like I said, we could sit here and talk. I, I could talk forever about this. It's what I love about the game, the the, the mentality of yeah. the game and the thought process. Not necessarily the physical, but the thought process, the chess game that, that hitters and pitchers play and all the tells. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I love when you mention who's on deck, you know, having that having that meeting with your partner on deck during a pitching chain. Hey, what's your history with this guy yeah. versus what's mm-hmm. my history? Who are they going to come after? Is there a base open? Do, is he going to come after me or is he going to kind of pitch around me? All this intel adds up to the best approach you can have. And if you – Stay consistent over 162. You know, you mentioned earlier, you're going to give yourself the best chance to have the most success. All right. We can talk about it forever. That's called, you know, one thing before we jump to that's one simple word for that. And that's what we try to teach players as uh, young players, as former players would experience. It's called game awareness, game awareness. You know, when you have very good game awareness, then you're going to be a better player. But you don't get that from making an out, going down the tunnel, looking at video all the time, and you're just looking at iPads, and it's all about you, and you're not even watching the game because the game's out there, and the game's still being played, but you're locked into your own little world on your iPad. It's all about me. Let me check it out. Let me check it out. My swing, my swing. You know, you're not going to change that the outcome of that at bat. But if you stand here and you learn from the game, what I loved about – uh, COVID or, you know, the COVID year was that no one was allowed in the video room. No one, you know, after all that stuff happened. So now the players for those short, that short season had to sit on the bench after an at-bat, after an out, and talk to their teammates and what happened during that at-bat. Information coming from a guy that just experienced something, what he saw. They had to sit there and watch the game. You know what I mean? I love that. The game used to be that way. Now it's all video and da-da-da, and, you know, it's like, come on, guys, watch the game. I, I personally, I have one player that helped me with this was Dustin Pedroia in Boston. He went and locked the video room one day. He goes, no more video, no more running to the video room. Everybody stay on the bench and watch the game. And I did that as well somewhere else, too, in New York. Locked the video room. Video room is off limits. And the boy sat there and watched the game. 
and you see the conversations going on and you see them talking to each other. You know, what's this guy got? What's that fastball? What's that pitch he just threw you? You know? Yeah, I watch, you know, who I watch, you know, who I watch in today's game, the Houston Astros do that. And they talk top to bottom. They go from player to player to player. They're discussing everything. There's a pitch and change. You got four of them together and you know what they're saying. Hey, what did he do to you last time? What did he, he likes to do this in this situation. Mm -hmm. He likes to do that. That's the most productive meetings you can have as hitters. Oh yeah. And and that's, that's called the elite level, the thought process. Uh, on the offensive side of the ball and you don't see it all the time. I'm sure there's, it's done more than, than the naked oh, yeah. eye sees, you know, I don't know. The I don't Dodgers, watch the brave. Yeah. yeah. You know, guys, the teams that win teams that play well, teams that win that that's, that. that's a great scenario. Teams that win. It makes yeah. sense. All right. We're diving into your career a little bit. We're, we're already going forever, but it's fun. Uh, minor leagues, yeah. you jump through it pretty pretty quick. You, you hit, you end up hitting three fifty in the PCL. I think you played in Phoenix. Uh, yeah. Get a cup of coffee in eighty one. I believe Frank Robinson was your first manager. Is that correct? Yep, big league manager. Frank, you know Frank used to. I used to play tennis with Frank in Puerto Rico when my dad was in winter ball. That's how I met Frank Robinson. His daughter used to babysit for me. That that came to mm-hmm. mind when I saw Frank was your your first yeah. manager. Roger Craig ends up taking over for him. But after your cup of coffee in 81, 82, you, you, get, a, you get a lot of ABs in, in 82, and you're a full-time yeah. player. You mm-hmm. hit 261, 19. You stole 24 bags, Chili. You were fleet of foot as 25. a kid. 25. 25. Oh, I thought it was 24. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you that year. 81, I was in the big leagues. I made the team out of spring training, coming out of double A. And I had a big spring and talk of the town in the, in the, in the uh, Cactus League, you know, and I was just getting into coming into who I wanted to be, you know, emulating Eddie Murray. My whole setup, everything was like Eddie Murray, you know, sit back on that back leg, you know, be behind the ball and boom, one move forward. Anyway, um, so I made the team. Uh, the last game I saw in the big leagues that year was a no hitter against us in Montreal by Charlie Lee. I was the only player that didn't play that day. After that game, I got sent to AAA. Why? Because they were going on strike in a week. The 1981 strike, remember that one? Lasted 56 days or something like that. Mm -hmm. I got sent to AAA because they didn't want, Frank called me his office and said, hey, I don't want you sitting around here doing nothing if the strike happens. So we're going to send you down to AAA. If it doesn't happen, we'll recall you. But it happened. So I went to AAA. I played in the PCL here in Phoenix for the Giants. Rocky Bridges was my manager. But the weird thing is, on the way out, uh, I played with Joe Morgan, Enos Cabell, Vida Blue, you know, a bunch of guys. You know, Jack Clark, Daryl Evans, Larry Herndon. So, So I was lucky. I came into the game with some elderly players that took me on their wing and directed me for the time I was in the big leagues. Well, I was going down and um, uh, Enos comes up to me and he goes, kid, kid, now, you know, you don't belong down there. You're a big leaguer. He said, but just go down there and hit about three city. (laughs) I'll never forget. I went down there and you know what, Brett, I was at that point in my life where I was learning how to hit change-ups, off-speed pitches very well, sit on them, 
recognize them, you know? So when I went to AAA, which is really just a, a big league waiting room in my mind, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, the guys in AAA, your prospects sometimes are in, in AAA, but they're not there long. If they're successful in AAA, they're in the big leagues. Most organizations' prospects are in the double A. You know what I mean? You can play in double A and, and, and uh, dom- dominate in double A. You could play in the big leagues, as far as I'm concerned. But when I went to triple A, it was kind of a joke. Some of the pitching I saw, you know, because these weren't guys, these weren't the top big league, next big league guys. You saw some guys, you know, uh, Fernando Valenzuela, you know, for a short time, you know, Ricky Wright or whoever, you know, these guys were there for a short period of time, you know, they weren't there for a long time. So I went down there and I had the best manager in the world, Rocky Bridges. Um, you know, he called me in his office and he says, uh, you know, I've never told any player this besides Jack Clark, but you're a can't miss. And I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, you are. He goes, you have the freedom to do whatever you want to do here. You swing 3-0. I just want to see how smart you are, you know, testing me. So I hit 350 in AAA. Dove at a ball and tore up my thumb. As a matter of fact, Tom Brunaski was playing for the Angels in AAA that year. He dove at a ball about a week before I dove at a ball, tore up his thumb, and I'm laughing at him going, you dumb dumb, in a couple weeks, it's September, and we're going to get called up to the big leagues. What are you doing diving for balls? Well, a week later, I dove at a ball and tore up my thumb, and the same surgeon did both surgeries. <laughs> Wow. Same exact surgery. You know, we talk about that all the time. But then I go to the big leagues in 82. And in 1982, um, Frank is the manager there still. And uh, the first half of the season, I'm talking about stolen bases, all the other numbers, that, whatever. And I let off. I should have been top two or maybe even the rookie of the year that year because I let all rookies in home runs and RBIs. Cal Ripken, Steve Sachs, everybody, you know? Uh, and I stole my share of bases. But the first half, Frank had the go sign for stealing bases with me, not the don't go sign. So he was telling me when to run. I stole 40 bases in AAA the year before. And uh, so anyway, I couldn't steal that way. So I tried 10. I had 10 attempts, and I got thrown out nine times the first half and the second half Joe Morgan went up to Frank. I went to Joe and I said, Joe, I can steal bases, but I need to have the freedom to read pitchers to go when I want to go, you know? So Joe went into Frank and he said, Frank, let me control the rookie. I'll tell him when I don't want him to go. Cause I might want to hit that hole. He hit behind me. You know, I might want to hit that hole. Da, da, da. And Frank goes, okay, Joe, you control him. Well, I stole 24 out of 25 bags the second half, you know, which was really nice. Kind of, I was 25 and 10. Yeah, yeah and it's amazing when you, get, stealing. when you when you get that, that, you know, I, I did the same thing, and I wasn't a base stealer. I think my top ever was 16. But I used to tell Panella, I said, Lou, listen, I'm not a base stealer. I said, but you got to trust me. 
just give me the yeah. green light. I got the green light no matter what. You know me. If I think there's a problem, they're paying attention to me. I'm not going anywhere. Just trust when yeah, I go, exactly. I'm going to be safe. And he gave it to me. And I, a lot of the times I would take off. They didn't expect me to run and be the easiest bag yeah. possible, you know. But but you're right. Having that freedom of of going when you want and just knowing your limitations, knowing if you're a, a 20 or 30 bad guy or knowing if you're a 15 bad guy, that, exactly. there's a part of that, that, that works when to go, when not to go. And that trust that you have to get between a manager and player, usually as and, a veteran yeah, exactly. player, the manager is going to give you more, more, you know, uh, more rope, more leeway. but yeah, but, 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 but when you're told to go, Oh, especially me. I wasn't a big base stealer when I used to be told to go early in my career. I'm like, oh, so I have to go on this pitch. I don't like yeah, stealing bases ready. anyway, and now I got to go. You know, you're handcuffing me here. Yeah. I'm not Ricky Henderson. So, and usually and, you're, t- you're giving it away because as soon as yep. I tell you, you oh yeah, I get panic. I start sweating. You're like, yeah, you know, <laughs> and they're like, Booney's going, Booney's going. <laughs> yeah, look, he looks it's like out. a fish out of it's water. Out. Look at him over there. It's He's twitching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. All right, yeah. jump to jump to 84. You had 315 with 21. You're an all-star for the first time. Don't, 86, you're an all-star again. Don't skip 83, Booney. Well, well let's don't talk about 83. 83. I don't want to skip 83 because I, it's a the biggest lesson I learned in the big leagues. You can never take the game for granted. And I had a decent rookie year and I came back in 83. And the focus and the, the uh, determination and everything about me was casual. I was so damn casual that I had the worst year of my career, you know? And See I, why I, I skipped myself. It? I hit 233 that year. Never hit 233 anywhere, you know? And, and I hit 233 and was thinking about giving up switch hitting at the end of the year. I got sent down to AAA that year at the All-Star break, you know, and one of the things that happened, and I'm not blaming anybody, I'm blaming myself, but we traded Jack Clark after the 82 season to the Cardinals, okay? We traded Jack, and all of a sudden, I'm hitting third. I'm not leading off anymore. So I put it on myself, like I had to hit 30, 40 home runs now, you know? And so I pressed and pressed, and I started off the year real good. I mean, we played four games. I had six homers. And then I went into, I went into a nine for 94 slump. Okay. Couldn't hit water if I fell out of a boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. But it taught me a lot. And I went home that winter and I played with Rich Murray and Venice Murray, who's Eddie Murray's brothers. And I asked Rich, I said, would, would Eddie mind coming out and working with me on my hitting? I had to rededicate myself. I got up every morning at 4.30 in the morning, went down to Dotwaller Beach in L.A., ran the beach, ran, 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 and talked to myself, worked my butt off. And it was trying to build my mental focus back. And I'd come back and work at this cage. And Eddie, actually, who told me he never hits in the offseason, but he was willing to come out and show me some things, join me on the way back from the beach at the batting cage. And the first day he comes out, I, he said, well, what do you got? I said, well, you know, I try to hit like you. And he said, let me see what I look like. You know, so me, meaning me showing him what he looked like. And I set up and he goes, nope, that's not what I look like. 
I don't set up like that. But then he explained to me why he set up the way he did and what he felt and what the reason was, what he was thinking, da-da-da. And I went, okay, good. So we worked and worked and worked. Well, the next year, well, in 83, let me back it up a little. 83, I was told, get on top of the plate, lower your hands, and you know, get the fastball in, I want you to pull that pitch. I want you to get the head out on that. Well, I wasn't that type of hitter. There's a lot of times 2-0, I would get a pitch out over the plate because I didn't get fastballs caught in the middle of the plate to just turn on 2-0 sometimes. Sometimes they were away, sometimes they were change-ups, whatever, and I would hit a ball to left center field 2-0, and the old school guys back then, you know, it was like a sin to do that, you know? 2-0, 1-0, you got to turn on something, you know? And I'm like, that's not my style. So I struggled. I'm not blaming anybody. 84, I went to spring training after working with Eddie Murray. And as soon as I got to spring training, I had a couple of coaches come up to me and go, hey, let's get in the cage, do this. I said, no, 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 no. I called Frank and I said, Frank, I said, with all respect, okay, with all respect, and I have the utmost respect for you and all my coaches, would you allow me to do, do it my way? And if I fail my way, I promise you I'll come to you. But allow me to do it the way that's comfortable for me. And he goes, all right, it's all, it's all you. Do it your way. And so 1984, with everything I learned from Eddie Murray and everything I put with me, I went out and I think I hit 315 or 318, made the all-star team. Nobody was winning a batting title that year because Tony Gwynn had like 360 that year, okay? So, you know, if you didn't hit 370, you're not beating, you're not winning the batting titles. I finished third. Ryan Stenberg, I think, finished second in hitting. It was me, Tony Wine, uh, Tony, Ryan, and Willie McGee, you know, all the young guys that, you know. So I had a really good year that year. But 1983 taught me more about playing the game than any successful year did. Because it taught me that I needed to, I should never take the game for granted. You're never at the point, as long as you're playing, that you're good enough and you you can stop working. You know, it doesn't happen automatically. You got to work at it. And and that's what isn't I learned from 83. Isn't it amazing, too, though, after you going through that experience? And uh, I went through some of these years late in my career where I had really big, big years. But... I had I had struggled enough certain years of my career where I didn't take myself too serious. You know, I was having a great mm-hmm. year, but I knew how hard this game was and I know where I had mm-hmm. been. So that's the last thing I think as as we mature in the game and, and we get the more experience we have, we learn to really appreciate the good times because of how hard this game is to, oh, yeah. to get five, mm-hmm. six hundred at bats. But you're right. Early in your career, you know, you, you said you could have possibly won the rookie of the year. You come you come skipping into spring training next year like, oh, it's just going to be there again. I'm going to you know, what am I going to do yeah. this year? And all of a sudden. You're flailing. They're making the adjustments. You're not making the adjustments. Aha. Mm-hmm. So, so that's it makes sense that that was a learning point for you. So the next time, you know, you played 19 years, the next time you were going to go through that, you said, ah, remember 83, what happened? That's mm-hmm. something, a reference exactly. point. And those are, you're right. Those are just important for us as hitters to have those experiences and those failures. Nobody likes to see anybody fail, but sometimes that failure makes you the player you become. 
I like to, you know, I tell you what, I coached one year in the minor leagues, and I like to see players have success. I think that there's a lot of young players today that are rushed to the big leagues that some of them, yeah, they're, they're going to be great players, you know, but some of them aren't ready. They haven't experienced that failure yet. They haven't had to overcome that failure in the minor leagues, you know. They had one good year in the minor leagues, and boom, you're in the big leagues. Well, you know, you, now you're in the big leagues learning, and if you fail in the big leagues, that's, that's, that's more taxing on your mind, more taxing on your mind than failing in the minor leagues. You know what I mean? Because you failed in the big leagues. But if you experience some, some, some kind of failure in the minor leagues and you get to the big leagues and you struggle a little, you, you, you understand, hey, man, you know, I got to just keep working. I'm like, you know, this is just for a short time. You know, and I had never really experienced failure in the minor leagues. And I, I, I experienced it in the big leagues. And fortunately for me, I had a manager that was behind me. I had an organization that was behind me, ownership, the Lurries, Bob and Connie Lurie. 1984, when I got to spring training, there were trade rumors to San Diego, to Chicago Cubs, to Detroit. I mean, you know, big-time trade rumors. And the owner came out and said, we're not trading him anywhere. He's a giant. He's going to stay right here. You know? So that was fortunately for me, I had people in my corner that believed in me, you know, and, you know, allowed me to stay in the game. And, you know, I had some decent years after that, but I felt like my career took off, Booney, when I went to the California Angels and I ran into Rod Carew you know, as a hitting coach and the conversations I had, and I had a great hitting coach in, in San Francisco too, very mental guy by the name of Tom McGraw. He also was a hitting coach for the Mets at one point, very good hitting coach, but Rod Carew, his thinking, his style, his put the barrel on the ball, work the whole field kind of thing. That just, that, that enhanced me. Cause I figured if I could, learn how to hit the ball like he did all over the field. And with the power I have, I was going to benefit from it. So as a hitter, two very influential people in my life. And one of them you probably know of, I know you would know him, but a lot of people would Al Oliver. Remember Al Oliver scoop? I I do. Mm-hmm. Scoop played with, Al- with the Giants. And, yep. And one day I told scoop, I said, scoop, I want to learn how to hit the ball left field as hard as you do left-handed. And he goes, kid, really? You want to learn how to do it? You came out for early BP and he looked at me and he goes, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to hit skipping ground balls to shortstop. And I looked at Scoop and I went, skipping ground balls? I said, Scoop, I don't want to hit ground balls. I want to hit line drives left field like you do. He goes, hit some skipping ground balls, kid. You'll see. And so I started getting on top of the ball and boom, trying to hit skippers to shortstop. All of a sudden, they turn into the missiles going to left field. And I'm like, ooh, that's how you do that, huh? Skipping ground balls, okay. You know? So, to me, you know, when I look at what's being taught now, a lot of times, launch angles and all this stuff, it's like, no, it's not. That's, that's no, no. That's, that's not hitting. Okay? That's data. Okay? Data don't make you a better hitter. Okay? Hitting makes your data better. When you're a good hitter, your data will be better. Okay? The data is just a result of what you do consistently every day. 
it won't make you a better hitter. Okay, so, you know, with all the launch angle analytical stuff and there's a lot of stuff going on right now, and I'm not going to blast the game on this podcast, but, you know, I love the game of baseball. You love the game of baseball. And there's a lot of stuff in the game right now that's not necessarily bad for the game, but it's too involved in the game right now, way too involved. You know, players need to learn from people that have experienced it and that can teach. Just because you're a good player, it don't make you a good coach. But if you have that experience and you can listen to your players and you can talk to your players and relate to your players and, and look at your players as individual and not try to put your brand on the player, but keep a player as close to natural as you can. His natural abilities add to that, not change him completely, not try to make him something he's not, not take a five-foot, no no, no pun intended, five-foot-ten guy <laughs> and say, I want you to hit 40 homers. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I watch kids right now take BP and crush balls to center field, and they're caught at the tracks. And they walk out of the batting practice and go, man, I got all that ball. I said, I know you did. I know you did. That should tell you something right there. Well, that's what they're You're making important in the game. Right, Chile. They're mm-hmm. making that important in the game. And it's it's not across the board. You've played with enough guys. Yeah. I've played enough guys. You're either a power hitter or you ain't a power hitter. Now, everybody can improve on what God's given them. But you're mm-hmm. never going to go from an 8 to 10 guy to a 40 guy. Just not going to happen. But they're making this no. launch angle. Everybody hit this way. Uh, uh, a launch angle for Aaron Judge might work, but it's not going to work for Thank Dustin you. Pedroia. He's got to have an approach. And that's what I tell players, too. A great approach yep. keeps you in the big leagues for a long time. I don't care about launch angles. I don't care about anything. I care about quality ABs because they're going to result in, in yeah. hits. They don't talk that much about average anymore. So it even stands out to me more. The yeah. guys today that hit 300 because there's not too many they're of them, good. they're even greater yeah. than, than you think yeah. they are because of, because of exactly. what's made important you're right you know, average still the, the 300 hitter is are still the, the best Trump. hitters around yeah yep 300 man uh, 300 i had a kid booney and brandon nimmo okay when i was with the mets and i didn't get a chance to work with brandon as much as i wanted to in 19 because he got hurt and went to the minor leagues for rehab and was there all year and i, I didn't see him again until september 2020 covid hit we all came home. They went back in July. I opted out because, you know, I'm diabetic. I didn't want to be around COVID, be that exposed. So I still didn't get a chance to be around Brandon Nimmo. 2021 spring training, I had a chance to be around Brandon Nimmo. And I had a chance to talk to Brandon Nimmo. And I had a chance to watch him struggle in spring training and watch him so down on himself that I saw a window of opportunity and I went over and sat and talked to him and he talked to me. He, was, he opened up to me and I just looked at him. I said, Nims, you know, he was facing a guy named Steven Tarpley and Steven is a left-hander with a two seam or sinking running two seam fastball. And, and Brandon Nims, Nims is a left-handed hitter. So he's just running that in on his hands, running those hands. After an at bat where he got jammed up a couple of times, he went and sat by himself in one of those other dugouts in spring training. And I walked over and I said, you want to talk about it? And he looked at me and he goes, chill. I know that he's throwing that two-seamer. 
I know he is. And I'm trying to get my hands inside that ball to beat it to that spot, but I get stuck right here. So I looked at him and I said, Nims, let me ask you a question. Do you see the ball the same from a left-hander as you do from a right-hander? He thought about it. He goes, no. I said, exactly. Because a right-hander, that ball's coming to you, and a left-hander, that ball's starting behind you sometimes, you know? But then you you treat them both the same with the setup, everything. You're closed off. You're hanging over the plate, everything. So now you can't really pick up this left-hander's release point. I said, you want to try something? I said, I'm going to tell you something. Step back, open up the front side a little bit against the lefty, square your head up, and sit on that back leg, and tell me you don't see the ball from him better, like with two highs instead of peripherally. And I said, I think you don't have to try it now because you might have one more bad, but you don't have to try it now. But we'll work on it in the cage. Well, I left him over there, and you can see him on deck, and he's opened up and he's thinking about it. Well, he went up to the plate, Booney, properly threw him a couple pitches in, and he took them because he saw him. And then he missed out over in a two-seamer coming back to the inside corner. Nims pulled his hands in and boom, hit a ball in the gap and got to second base. And he was so happy. And my assistant hitting coach comes over to me and he goes, chill, you're good, man. I said, no, 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 no. This ain't about me right now. I said, Slate, look at that young man at second base. Look at that smile on his face. He just found something right there. And when he and came it's back pretty, But in, it's pretty cool for you that, too, though, because you're just a small mm-hmm. part of a kid you know what because you know as a player what that felt like when you got a little tip oh, yeah. and you'd look oh, you'd look yeah. into the dugout and like give the guy who gave it to you props without putting it on the front page of the newspaper but deep down it makes you feel good as a as a teacher oh, yeah man that smile and then brandon nimmo smiled and then he came in booney and he was just yeah, 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 yeah. Talk. I mean, I saw that ball so big. I oh, chill. I saw that ball so big, <laughs> you know, and he's, and he's just going off and I said nims let me tell you another little secret. I said, if you do that with some right-handers, you'll see them better too. And he goes, really? I said, yep. It's a great setup, gives you a great comfort zone, a good load on your backside, and you don't have to hurry up for anybody. And he started doing it. Now, last year, this is the point I'm trying to make. Last year, he hit 297 or something like that. At the end of the year, he calls me. He was so happy. He goes, chill, most kids. Brendan Nimmo never calls you, okay, first of all. And he calls me and he goes, I hit 297 this year, Chill, and I just want to thank you. He goes, I just want you to know I missed you when you and Slate were gone, but I just want to thank you because everything we talked about in spring training came true. Everything you said in spring training happened, you know, because I told him, I said, you know, what's damage? You know, how much damage can you do? I said, you know what damage is, Nims? Yeah, you hit a 450-yard home run. You think that's damage? No, damage for you is when you've got a runner at second and third, two outs, and you have a lefty. They brought a lefty in to get the third out because they think they can get you out. And you're smart enough to say, I'm not trying to go deep. And he throws you a pitch hanging on the outside part of the plate and just put the barrel on and take a, du- a little line drive over the shortstop head. Both those runs score, you just did damage. You know why that's damage? Because they didn't want you to drive those runs in. And I said, some days, some days, even when you're raking for two weeks straight, you're red hot. One day you're going to wake up and feel different. You know, you know that feeling, Booney. One day you're going to mm-hmm. wake up because you came in from a, a long night game from a road trip 
and you got a day game the next day and everything is hurried up and your body don't feel the same, I don't feel powerful. I said, why would you want to go out there and force power? Aren't you a good enough hitter to say, okay, let me be a little more disciplined. I'll take three singles today. I'll take three singles today. Because the more I can be rested, you know, instead of coming in and saying, I didn't feel good, man, and now I'm going to change something to feel a little more powered, and next thing you know, you got to fix something today, and you got to fix something tomorrow, except the fact that every day you don't feel the same. So he told me at the end of the year, he goes, most consistent year I ever had. I said, yeah. I said, what did the analytical guys say? Well, they told me my OPS plus was down 20 points. My fly ball rate was down. My ground ball rate was up. I said, yeah. I said, what did you hit on fly balls? He goes, oh, 250. I said, and what did you hit on ground balls? 330. I said, so let me ask you something. They want you to hit more fly balls. He goes, I don't know if they want me to hit more fly balls. I said, well, they tell you that that rate was down and the ground ball rate was up. And, you know, I said, you learned something this year that it takes a lot of people five, six years to learn. You learn how to be a consistent hitter. Don't let anybody change that. Do not let anybody change that. Because every day you, when you hit 300, you're just talking about hitting 300. When you're hitting 300, 320, 330, you're having fun every day, pretty much. You're having, you're having a good day every day. Instead of going 0 for 4, you go 1 for 3. Because you take a walk, you know, you hit a sack fly. Smart at bats. So the one word you used to me today was consistent. When you have consistency and then you have a very good, consistent approach, then you're going to be a better player. Boom. That's all I got. 300, you will always have a uniform. Always. I don't yep. care what anybody says. I think he's hitting over 300 this year. I think he's having a good year again. And I'm not 88. crediting it myself. Huh? No, go ahead. I'm not crediting myself. You give the credit to that kid for implementing what you tell them, taking it and applying it, you know, you give them the credit because they're the ones in the batter's box. You know that as a coach, I can tell you everything in the world. If you don't know how to use it, it ain't going to work. Nope. You know, so he gets the credit. So anyway, I'm talking too much. I'm starting to annoy myself. The Boone Podcast continues with our two-part special podcast with Chili Davis. Check back next week for part two.